It's very nice to see how many could make it tonight. Um, I'd like to welcome particularly those that are here for the very first time. And if you don't mind just letting me know who you are with your hands up. Can I just see first-timers? Great. Very glad to have you here. And I hope you'll stay after. You're in one of our more um, celebratory nights. This is the end of our silent auction, and there's been a lot of buzz around it, so you'll probably feel it. It's contagious. Um, And it's a bit, um, the topic tonight of tonight's talk is a bit about community and about sangha, which is the word in Pali for spiritual community. And in particular, how it is that the Buddha came to consider our relationships with each other as one of the three jewels of awakening. His three jewels are the the Buddha, which is Buddha nature, realizing our Buddha nature, the Dharma, these teachings and practices that wake us up. And then the third, and it's like a tripod that each needs the other leg, is us together. It's this sense of togetherness. And I mentioned last week that the Buddha, when asked by his disciple about good friends being half of the holy life, he said, no, good friends are the whole of the holy life. And that statement has kind of resonated over 2,500 years. There's something really big about that, that we don't, we might go off to a cave for a while, but so much of our our awakening of discovering who we are and what we are happens with each other when we discover the truth that we are not separate selves, that we really are a part of each other. We use the word friend so casually that we forget its power and depth. In uh, Pali, friendliness is one of the main translations for the word metta, or loving-kindness. That the care and understanding of a friend is like a well that, that really drops us right into the source of our being. And I sometimes think that if all the great religions and ideologies disappeared and there was only one pursuit that all beings had, and that was friendship unconditional friendliness with each other. What a world! (laughs) Wouldn't that do it? Wouldn't everything else just follow right along? So, in Pali, this word Sangha originally meant the community of uh, holy ones, the nuns and the monks and so on, And, and its much larger version really is And the way I sense it is this whole web of relationship that we find ourselves in and within which we awaken and without which we can't live. I wanted to tell you about a story I heard in a nature series on TV and it was on elephants and describing, as many of you know, how um, horrifically we have violated elephants over the last century by transporting them to zoos and circuses and how they've been mistreated and mishandled, and mostly how they've been isolated. Often they get isolated and they're really social creatures. So in this uh, series there's a story about how in one Louisiana zoo 
there was a female elephant named Shirley, and she was alone in that zoo for 25 years. She just didn't have any contact with any other elephants. And finally she got old and they knew they needed to get rid of her. And as it turns out, there is a woman in Tennessee who has bought up hundreds and hundreds of acres just for old, sick elephants. I think that's kind of an amazing way to dedicate. What a bodhisattva, you know. Anyway, and it's a place where they're free to wander around and just live to the end of their days. So that's where Shirley was transported to, to this land in Tennessee. And at first they put her in a cage because they were, they were afraid that, you know, she had been alone for all those years, there might be trouble with the other elephants. But one by one the elephants came up to the cage and they visited her and it seemed fine. Until one, came, one elephant, another female, came up and Shirley and this elephant started getting really, really excited and they both started trumpeting and going up on their hind legs. And they were so excited they bent open the bars of the, of the cage. And uh, it turns out that they were in a circus together 25 years ago. <laughs> and they were best friends, you know, and they were having a reunion. <laughs> and so, when, so Shirley was out of her cage, and for the rest of their lives, you, you just, they were inseparable. They just wandered around this land together, um, two aging beings who had reconnected with dear friends. It's not just us, it's the way this natural world is, that we are part of something larger, we belong together, we belong to our earth. And when we're suffering, and this is the Buddhist description of suffering, it's because we've forgotten that we belong. It's because we've gotten caught in a delusion of, of being a separate, isolated self. And inevitably, with that delusion comes the sense that something's wrong with us, that we're at risk, that something bad's going to happen, that we always have to look around the corner. With that delusion comes that we're going to, any moment, really make a mistake and blow it, and that what's around the corner we can't handle. So there's a constant tensing against our world. There's a constant armoring. That's dukkha. That suffering, that's the discomfort that the Buddha talked about, this not realizing our wholeness, our connection. And it's not just humans. So our practice on the cushion, as you just, we keep doing, is to deepen our attention and reconnect with the parts of our being that we've pushed away. Because the first ways that we isolate ourselves is by rejecting parts of our own being. And if we can't reconnect with the the fear or the shame or the anger, then there's no way we're going to sense that somebody else will love us or that we belong in community. So we practice on the cushion in this way. And what's so interesting, and I mentioned this last week, is that you'll see huge, huge amounts of suttas and and teachings about how to pay attention to our inner experience. But whatever we struggle with on the cushion, looking inward, is the exact thing that we struggle with with each other. So that the same type of training that we do to be more attentive, to be more soft, to be more real, to stay here, needs to be integrated into our living relationships or else we're living a very um, 
compartmentalized kind of spiritual life where we go off and have our nice morning meditation but then go yell at somebody or, you know, at work or, you know, in some way really harden our heart as we move through the day. So Thich Nhat Hanh, um, some years ago, said that in the West the Buddha is the Sangha. That particularly for us, because we're so caught up in this sense of individualism with our pride and being self-reliant and so on, that we can learn that we wake up in community is the most revolutionary way of cutting through the delusion. Especially for Americans. I was struck by this a few years ago. I had a meditation student that was, you know, she had done a lot of practice, gone to a lot of long retreats. And she told me her story and that she, she kept hitting this wall of fear that was really hard to work with. And as it turned out, when she was about four years old, her parents, they were, the family was moving. And in the craziness of moving, she got left alone in the basement of their old house. And for about five hours she was left alone in the cellar and she went through being, you know, terrified and screaming and yelling to kind of going numb and being paralyzed. And as an adult there were many instances when she'd feel either she was going to be abandoned or deserted in some way and it would bring up that same really infantile sense of I'm alone in the world and this is absolutely intolerable and I'm going crazy, that feeling. And she'd be at retreat and the, and the instructions are, well, you sit with it and you open to the fear and you name it. But there was a, a young child in her that was screaming, I can't do this. I don't want to do this alone. I can't, you know. And she felt powerless. So when we started working together, what became clear was that she wasn't supposed to do it alone. And that this deep shame she had that in some way she wasn't, you know, other people could sit and work with their inner experience but she was too fragile or shaky, that was the place she needed to get kind around. So it was a real breakthrough on the spiritual path for her to realize that her relationships with other people could be part of this being with fear, that she could call on others that her life was inextricably bound up with others, that she had been hurt in relationship, she could be healed in relationship. And it started a bit in in therapy for her, but really where most of it took place, this sense of finding a refuge with others, or in, was in her KM groups, this is Kalyanamitta groups, some of you know, or it means spiritual friends, and in um, the Buddhist community, there is a growing movement of people getting together in groups of six or eight people where they can live the teachings in relationship, listen to each other, accept each other, hold a space where there's a refuge. This is a third of the jewels. So she found in her Kalyanamitta group this sense that if she was alone in the basement she had this sense that now she had something she could call on. And even when she was not in the group, she had that sense of the presence of caring others that really was a container. So, in the same way that we 
have to train ourselves to be intimate with what's difficult within us. Relationships are a training on the spiritual path. And the training is a very profound attentional training because we have so many programs that flip in as soon as we're with each other where we become completely disconnected and completely in our presentation. So it takes, it takes some real attention. Perhaps the first place that we practice with each other is really listening. And as you know, in this culture, in the same way that we don't quiet and listen to our inner life, when we're with each other, we're usually commenting or interpreting or coming up with our opinions. I mentioned last week that we, we move through the world and because we are, tend to be self-absorbed, the world's like, we're on, it's a stage of kind of two-dimensional figures and either they're going along with us or they're getting in our way or sometimes making us feel better. But we forget that each person's real. We forget that each being is conscious. There's that wonderful story of Father Theophane where he's given this question, what do they need? And what if we went through our day and more and more moments, that was our filter. We saw someone, or a parent or a child or someone at a store or a friend or a coworker, and some place in us we're asking that question. You know, what does this person need? So we begin with a kind of a listening presence where we're not so much interpreting anything but we're just trying to sense who's here, what's happening. I have a story for you. And this is uh, described by a man who was kind of in a group of people hiking a mountain. They were at the top and he was sitting around and one of the people in the group who he didn't know came over and sat by him. And he said he had been kind of sitting with this blissfulness and this person just started talking. And he said he sat down and immediately started to describe this problem he was going through. By the time I had pulled myself out of the higher realms, he had already detailed the whole drama, the cast of characters and the decisions he was facing. I hadn't gotten a bit of it. Nothing. Nobody. Moreover, it was much too late to ask him to run it all down once more. (laughs) He would have felt very uncomfortable, justifiably. Have you ever been in that situation where you just miss some key things and then you wavered? Should I ask what they're really talking about? And it's it's hard. You don't want to hurt their feelings. So there I was an intimate confidant to a deep problem without the slightest idea of who was who and who had done what to whom. My first reaction was to laugh hysterically. It was one of those great human condition moments. But this guy was obviously in distress and looking for a kindly pair of ears, so I picked up as best as I could. To my continued amazement, none of the details became any clearer as we walked down the mountain. I kept hoping I'd find out who she really was and what he had actually done. No such luck. And I wasn't about to ask a question that would reveal my total ignorance, make him feel terrible, or lead me to hysterical laughter. So we just quietly walked on down. And from time to time I would punctuate the conversation with what seemed like appropriate remarks. That must have been hard. What did you feel then? Oh yes, I've been through that before. Boy, things sure do get confused in life. (laughs) Great insights like that. 
And he would nod appreciatively, continue, and I'd contain my sense of this wonderful human absurdity. Meanwhile, I was growing increasingly fond of this guy and feeling great empathy for his problem, whatever it was. (laughs) When we reached the bottom of the hill, he stopped for a moment and then suddenly embraced me. I just want you to know how incredibly helpful you've been, he said. (laughs) You're one of the most understanding, compassionate people I've ever met. Do you think we could have another conversation like this again? (laughs) I was dumbfounded. It was one of the great moments in my life. Sure, I said, I'd love to. And he walked off to join some other people, a number of whom kept coming to me during the day saying, what did you tell Eddie? (laughs) He's just so grateful to you. He says you're wonderful. (laughs) You know, we don't always get it when we listen, and that's not the point. The point is really the quality of heart that we're bringing, that we care, that we're showing up. And if we ask that fantastic question, you know, what does this person really need, we will know that each person needs to be listened to. Each person finds that as they're listened to, it's a way of knowing that they're alive, that they belong. We let each other know our togetherness by listening. It's kind of amazing when you watch the process how when someone feels understood or heard there's a relaxing. It's like everything they were holding on to intense about they can kind of let down because there's a bigger space that it's all being held in. That's, I think, part of what was so touching about that story about Shirley was that it got the sense that she had finally found the natural field of belonging, that she could just live her life. It wasn't like some artificial thing. But it takes practice to do this, this listening and being with so we can create a space for each other where we can let down our fears and just feel covered. This is Herman Hess and Siddhartha. He, but he learned more from the river than Vasudeva could teach him. He learned from it continually. Above all, he learned from it how to listen with a still heart, with a waiting, open soul, without passion, without desire, without judgment, without opinions. So this gift we offer to each other, this gift of listening, allows the other person to become more real. That in the moments that we're really present, that distance between dissolves and a person's realness comes up and they can let go and they can even let go in some of the deepest ways. This is the healing power of listening. Um, There's a wonderful story Arnie Mandel tells about the power of really listening and being with another person And in this case, he was in a hospital and there was this old man named John, an African-American guy who had been lying in a coma for six months and he sat next to John, held his hands, this is Arnie speaking, and as he was lying there with raspy breathing, uh, Arnie Mandel describes what happens. He says, I started to breathe along with him and squeeze his hand with each breath. 
making that noise. <sighs> so this is really deep listening. This is when we are listening so deeply, we're sensing the movement of the person's life breath. And after about 10 minutes of just breathing his breath and squeezing his hand and making the same sound, all of a sudden he opened his eyes. This is after six months. He opened his eyes and he sat up and he said, you see that? I said, sure, what was that? He said, a big white ship's coming for John. Are you going to take it? I asked. Not me, he said. I'm not getting on that ship. Why not? I asked. That ship's going on vacation. It's a cruise ship and I've got to get up the morning to go to work, John said. Now, John had worked hard all his life and he was now in his 80s. His cancer had reduced him to a bag of bones. He was stuck at the end of his life because he couldn't allow himself to go on vacation. So I said to him, you know, going to work sounds okay, but maybe you should check the ship out, take a look in there and see who's driving the ship. So he closed his eyes, his eyes opened startled and he said, Well, there's angels down there driving that ship. Do you want to find out where it's going, I asked. So he went inside again, looked, came back out and said, that ship's going to Bermuda. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I knew he looked like a kind of practical guy, so I said, well, what does it cost? (laughs) A little later he said, it doesn't cost anything. It costs nothing. I said, well, think about it. Did you ever take a vacation? No, he said, never had a vacation. I've been working, working, working. Well, I said, you might try it. He started to think about it. Chances are, if I don't like it, I could probably come back. I said, yeah, maybe you could. Then I said, you do what you want. I'll trust your judgment. I'm busy. I have to see someone else now. And so I left him. He closed his eyes and that was it. When we came back 30 minutes later, he had died. He had gone to Bermuda. This is a true story um, and it really describes the power of of the breath as a vehicle, but more than that, the power of what happens when we're joined by someone. There's a tension in us when we don't feel a part of something larger. And that tension begins to dissolve. It begins to let go when the presence of another or other people in our life that love us or care let us know we belong. So that's the first part of this training of Sangha, of relationship, is a kind of willingness to put down our stuff and really pay attention. So who is this person? And what do they need? I mean, can we look at each other and really register this being is real? Then hold that quality of listening space. Now the second thing to say is that this listening presence is grounded in acceptance. What allows us to listen and be with each other in a way that's healing is that there's a profound acceptance of what we see and hear. It's what we call radical acceptance. It goes right to the root. It cuts through everything. It says, I agree and open to this life however it is. I hold you however you are. 
There's a, a wonderful description by Anthony DeMello, who's a Jesuit priest, and he talks about acceptance. He talks about how in his younger years he was really unhappy a lot. And um, some of you might have read his books and so on. A wonderful teacher, spiritual teacher, and um, a wise man. But as, it, as he describes his youth, he was neurotic and depressed and, and fearful and like many of us, he adopted one self-improvement project after another and looked towards a spiritual life to try to fix what was broken. And he became despairing because nothing seemed to work. And part of what was so painful is that all his friends were also on his case trying to egg him along to fix himself and to not be so self-absorbed. Well, his world stopped one day when one of his friends said to him, don't change. I love you just the way you are. Don't change, don't change. He let these words stream through his heart. Don't change, I love you just the way you are. He relaxed and he opened to a feeling of aliveness that had been blocked off for years. And by letting in that message of being okay, he felt absolutely free to change. Rogers, the great psychologist, talks about this, that it's not until we accept ourselves completely as we are that we really can be free to change. It's the same thing with each other. Now that doesn't mean that we like it when somebody that we love or care about is hurting themselves with drugs or alcohol or hurting us with their temper or their behavior. Accepting doesn't mean we like behaviors, and we might do all we can to strategize with them on things that might be helpful, but it needs to be grounded in radical acceptance, grounded in this deep message, I love you as you are. The as you are is your basic being. This is the power of acceptance, and I've noticed um, I, for many years, when I was, especially when I was very active in my clinical practice, worked with people struggling with addictions and have seen all the different kinds of programs and strategies, whether it's with drugs or alcohol or food. And there's stuff that can work and there's stuff that can help people maintain abstinence, the certain substances that cause trouble. But what really changes things, what turns an addiction into a space of freedom where there's actually a sense where we can choose and we're not being driven, is when we've embraced our own being in a much deeper way. It's the self-acceptance that, that releases the addiction. So that's part of what we offer each other, is this space of acceptance. Michael Mead, some of you might know about, describes this healing ritual in Africa and in it, if any of the members of a tribe get sick, it's emotionally or physically, uh, the belief is that one of their ancestors, the tribal ancestors, is, is suffering from a toothache. So, so how they deal with it. So here you get anybody in the tribe that's having trouble and they all agree, oh, there's a toothache one of our ancestors is having a problem with. So they do is they get together. They, the whole tribe gets together and they spend the whole night singing and dancing and drumming and through the night each person in the tribe reveals their personal problems and through this communal truth-telling 
the tooth is extracted and the ancestors healed and of course they get healed too. Now there's really a wonderful wisdom to this ritual. Um, We only get sicker, and this is so common in our culture, when we think it's our personal problem. As soon as we think, well, my depression, it's like, it's way out of bounds. I mean, this isn't just normal depression, this is my depression, you know. Or my temper and anger, or my shame, or my addictiveness. If, as soon as we own it and think it's our problem, then it gets compounded, we get buried in it. When we can sense it as some, the pain that's part of the universe, you know, the Sufis say it, that the mother of the universe has the pain of the universe and we're each a part of her heart, so we're each carrying a bit of that cosmic pain in our own form. When it can be, it's just our pain, it's not my pain, it's our pain, and when we together hold it, as this tribe did, there's a lot more freedom that allows for healing. This is in a sense what I think the power is of the 12-step groups and then in the Buddhist community, the spiritual friends groups, is that the more we let each other know how hard things are or how fantastic things are, how anything things are, the more we sense, oh, we're all in this together. And it opens up the field of who we think we are. We belong to something larger. So in this training, we train to listen, we train to accept. The third part of the training is to, in a sense, become a mirror for each other. That um, many of you might notice at the end of sittings we bow, and sometimes you might wonder, well, who are we really bowing to? Anybody wonder that? (laughs) You know, the word, the Sanskrit word namo, or namaste, It means I I see the sacred in you, the divine in you. We bow and we look at someone, I see the God in you, the beauty in you. And it's one of the most beautiful parts of Asian culture, I think, that rather than going, hey, how you doing? They go, namo. It's a big difference, isn't it, feeling tone-wise? So this is part of what we train ourselves to be able to do, to, to look at each other And when we're here and we bow after a a meditation, we're bowing to the sacred that is in all beings. Look to see how each being is an awakening Buddha. This is from a Zen master. He describes that there's all these wonderful Buddha statues at the Metropolitan Museum. And he says, they're national treasures, bodhisattvas and many statues. They're wonderful, of course. But you, you are living bodhisattvas, each of you, living, not bronze or wood. Sometimes something bad may happen. Oh, I will pray to Buddha. No, 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 there's no such Buddha. Realize this and every human becomes wonderful. Open your own eyes. Don't think, oh, I'm not yet enlightened, someday I'll get enlightened. From today, forget such. From the beginning, we are the enlightened one. Believe this with definite faith, so this mind, please, let us bow to each other without exception. Each of you is a living Buddha, without exception, okay? (laughs) It's that spirit 
that we really start recognizing that this idea that we're on this path and maybe if we work hard we might finally come to something and awaken to something we are awakening Buddhas the light and the love and the beauty that we cherish is already here in each of us if you have any trust in what the Buddhist path is about it all comes down to this truth that it's already who we are each of us and we need each other to remind us we live in this web sometimes described as the jeweled net of Indra I love this the God, this is the Hindu god Indra this jeweled net of reality where at each juncture in this web net there's a jewel and each jewel has infinite facets that reflect and refract every other jewel and the whole net comes alive because of this reflecting back and forth every moment that we're able to pause and see in another their kindness we're like that jewel mirroring back what's true and we wake it up in each other that's the beauty of it even when somebody's really forgotten we wake it up in them I've been really fortunate to live in spiritual communities uh, I started when I was oh, about 21 and spent 12 years in a spiritual community and then when I left immediately got busy at getting together with other people that wanted to practice around here because it is without having other people to share with and practice with and remind each other there's a sense of being this self trying to make it which is where all the suffering is so when you come here on Wednesday nights I feel accompanied I mean I really feel grateful that we get to come together because I don't know how to wake up without waking up with other people without seeing and being seen without sharing and sensing a a belonging to something larger this is a story told by Andreas Shah he says a certain Bektashi dervish was respected for his piety and appearance of virtue whenever anyone asked him how he had become so holy he always answered I know what is in the Quran one day he had just given this reply to an inquirer in a coffee house when an imbecile asked well okay so what's in the Quran in the Quran said the Bektashi there are two pressed flowers and a letter from my friend Abdullah it's the only game in town you know we get so busy with what we think we're doing and trying to produce and accomplish and yet what most matters is that feeling of in love with our world that we belong so we train on the cushion to pay attention because attention the capacity to be mindful is what wakes up the truth of belonging we can't see it unless we're present so we train to be present and we need to train in a quiet way because we're so scattered and distracted we train on the cushion and look inward and get intimate with our own life and we train with each other 
And if you're not fortunate enough to be in a KM group, and you certainly can be if you'd like to be, you train with whoever's in your life. Our spiritual awakening is as much involved with how when we leave here we go home and we're with our spouse or our child or tomorrow at work with an employee or a boss or at a retail store with a clerk. It's, it's how we are in this world. Stay together, friends. Don't scatter and sleep, writes Rumi. Our friendship is made of being awake. The water wheel accepts water and turns and gives it away weeping. That way it stays in the garden. Stay here, quivering with each moment like a drop of mercury. So tonight we're reflecting a little on the power of, of knowing our togetherness. And it takes a devoted kind of training because our habits are so much to, to be reactive and it feels separate that there's a certain commitment to slowing down and looking at others. And if there's anything that you walk away with, if you can just take one kind of filter like, okay, no more, I'm, gonna, I'm going to look at others and in some way see that beauty or that question, what do they need? It doesn't matter what it is, but some intention to look more closely wakes up the love that's between us. I'll close with one of my favorite all-time poems by David Budville, and it's called Bugs in a Bowl. This, guy, this is from Han Shan, a great old crazy Chinese poet of a thousand years ago. He said, we're just like bugs in a bowl all day going round. I say, that's right, up the sides and back down, round and around, over and over again. Sit in the bottom of the bowl, head in your hands, cry and moan. Or look around, see your fellow bugs. Say, hi, how you doing? Say, nice bowl. <laughs> So we'll close with a very short few moments of silence. I'm taking these moments to again come home into your body and into your heart. And without any judgment, just accepting how it is right now, the sensations of sitting. Just listening inwardly to your own body. Feeling the aliveness that's here. Recognizing your own being as awareness. Awareness that hears sound. that recognizes sensation, that feels this breath. And just in your own way, saying Namo and bowing to this life that's within, just acknowledging awareness, Namo. 
bringing to mind someone who's dear to you in your life, that you love and you're close to. And in the same way, sensing their realness, that this is a conscious being who loves and who fears and who has the light of the divine, that sacred awareness, that knowing. And just sense that same kind of bowing, namo. bringing to mind someone you don't know so well. Maybe someone you see here, you might have smiled at or said hello to, but you haven't really spent time with. Just feel into the presence of that person. their wakefulness, that this is a living, caring being. Mentally just bowing and whispering, Namo, Namaste. I see the divine in you. For the last few moments, letting whoever comes to mind, whoever comes into awareness, letting yourself be aware of their realness, of their goodness, of the Buddha that's looking out from their eyes at you and bow namo, namaste. Namaste.